0: Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership
1: Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth.
0: The goal to help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey everybody, and welcome to episode four hundred and eleven of the podcast. It's Carrie here, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. Well, so good to have Ian Morgan Cron back on the podcast. If you uh, Follow all things Enneagram. You probably know about Ian, and if you don't, you're in for a treat. And today's episode is brought to you by Promedia Fire. You can book your social media management consultation today at promediafire.com forward slash growth. And by XPS 2021, CDF Capital is bringing you a gathering of innovative XP leaders. You can join by googling XP Summit. So. We're going to talk now, you know, things are reopening. I mean, I don't know about you. We're still in lockdown in Canada. I think we're going to be in lockdown till like I'm 90. I don't know. But the UK is reopening. Hey there, uh, UK listeners, we see you and hear you. Europe is kind of all over the place. Australia, New Zealand, you're kind of reopened. If you're in Texas, Georgia, you're reopened. Different parts of the US are going at different times. But you know, we have been through quite the year. And so we're going to talk about how and we get into it uh, a little bit about how Ian's handled this but then we get into how your enneagram type responds to chronic stress cuz that's what you're in right you're in chronic stress and the uh, the opening is kind of reopening is is wobbly and we don't really know what to expect so I hope you're going to find this really helpful I know I did and then listen to the end because he's talking about fake authenticity and true vulnerability we've talked about that a couple of times and it just Nails me. Nails me. So I'm going to talk uh, at the end, too, in the What I'm Thinking About segment about self-awareness. Because, you know, people are like, really? The Enneagram? And I have so many personality profiles done on me on my team, it's not even funny. But how that's actually, I believe, a spiritual discipline. Because you won't confess what you can't address. And so I'm going to talk about that at the end of the episode. And I hope you really enjoy it. Ian Cron is a best-selling author, psychotherapist, Enneagram teacher, Episcopal priest, and the host of the popular podcast Typology, which I listen to. I've been on it. My wife and I have been on it. His books include the novel Chasing Francis, the spiritual memoir Jesus, My Father, the CIA, and Me, and The Road Back to You, an Enneagram Journey to Self-Discovery. He's also working on a brand new book. He's a sought-after speaker Uh, His clients include the Discovery Channel, Ramsey Solutions, Michael Hyatt Company, Warner Brothers Music, OCLC, among others. And he and his wife, Anne, have three children. They live in Nashville. And with that said, imagine waking up wowed by the beautiful content you see on your social media platform all week long. You ever just look at your social and go, I need to up my game? Well, imagine your Instagram and Facebook stories filled with excitement, custom graphics. You got two choices in 2021 when it comes to social media. You or a team member, do it yourself all day, all night. Try to get it right. And remember, the algorithm and the the strategy is constantly changing. Or you hire Pro media Fire. You get an entire team of experts that keeps up with trends to help you grow online. So the choice is yours. And if you're interested in learning more, Book your social media management consult today. It's free at promediafire.com forward slash growth. That's promediafire.com forward slash growth. And if you're a second chair leader, executive pastor, admin pastor, operations pastor at a local church, you have a lot of influence. And I know a lot of you listen to the show. So I'm privileged to have been part of the executive pastor summit, which we call XPS in the past. And they've got another one coming up. This year, the voices that they're featuring include Ed Stetzer, Dan Ryland, and Beth Gannum. The event is May 25th, 26th in Denver, Colorado. You will actually get to fly on an airplane and go in there. So I would encourage you to sign up and connect with the sharpest women and men XP leaders in the country. You can check out more. You may want to write this down, okay? You can go to welcome.cdfcapital.org, xps 2021 That's welcome.cdfcapital.org forward slash XPS 2021. Or here's what you can do, Google XP Summit. That will get you there too. Maybe you want to try that one. So don't miss that, May 25th, 26th in Denver, Colorado. Well, I am so excited to dive into my wide-ranging conversation with Ian Morgan Cron. Here we go. Ian Morgan Cron, welcome back. It's good to connect again.
1: Carrie, it is always a pleasure to hang out with you.
0: And so we were chatting about retyping me. Am I a three or an eight? We may get to that at some point, but I want to start where we are. Last time you were on, we were a few months into the crisis. And honestly, I just never, you know, nobody knows what's coming until it happens. And here we are (laughs) a year and a bit later, and we're still in the midst of whatever we're in by the time this airs. There's not any easy relief in sight. And I would just love to know, um, you know, let, let's, let's start personally. What's been the most surprising thing for you in this crisis so far, Ian?
1: You know, uh, initially I would have said um, that um, how easy it was for me um, to deal with lockdown. Hmm. You know, like, like in other words, as a, like a four on the Enneagram, the individualist's time alone to reflect to read to be creative uh i'm i have a very strong introverted side it 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 wasn't terribly hard in some ways in the beginning but this year now i live in nashville so we've you know here we've been through a horrible election we went through uh, lots of civil uh, unrest Uh, We here in Nashville went through a terrible tornado, uh, a big flood, um, COVID. uh, I mean, just things started stacking up, right? Hmm. And and eventually, I really got to the point that I was pretty darn, I I guess I didn't realize, honestly, and I came to the conclusion that I'm living in a traumatized country. Hmm. Like this whole country is traumatized and i'm sure that that's the case to some degree in every oh, yeah. country in the world you know but i and i'm understanding the i'm just beginning to think about well what are the long term effects of that kind of trauma on a on a on a country and on individuals it's going to be very interesting to see what happens
0: yeah you know that's a really interesting observation i think we're definitely at the Cultural impact level, like you and I. I mean, we're we're not twenty year olds anymore. But like you know, I, I think about my my uh, friends with young kids. You know, some of their children. It's like all of their life, half their life, a quarter of their life have been lived in pandemic lockdown, perpetual crisis. You know, we've had a year plus now. So you know, that's meaningful. If you live to be a hundred, one or two percent of your life was was lived in in this kind of environment. And I think it's this cascading crisis business. We have our internal trauma, our internal struggles, but then all of this, like you're saying, natural disasters, racial injustice, political unrest, economic inequality, all of that is compiling and it shows up at a leader's door every single day.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: What, What have been helpful coping strategies for you and what have been unhelpful coping strategies for you?
1: Well... You know, in terms of help ones i you know as a therapist i work with people who are pretty stressed and as a consultant now with CEOs and corporate management teams, I'm dealing with a lot of stress they're dealing with and it's pretty intense right <laughs> uh, given lockdown and working from home and et cetera et cetera you know i I pay attention to the details carrie i i I really do I believe in the basics um, you know, if if someone if a client comes in, let's say, or a CEO comes in, they're like, I'm just freaked out. I'm flipped out about this. They'll call at eight o'clock in the morning. I'll be like, okay, um, what did you eat for breakfast? <laughs> <laughs> There'd be silence on the other end of the phone. They're looking for some big existential answer, right? And I'm like, what did you eat for breakfast? Oh, know, I, I didn't have time for breakfast. Okay. How much water have you drunk today? I'll ask the question, when was the last time you exercised? And then I'll ask, how much sleep have you gotten in the past three nights? And and a lot of times, what what I hear is two, three, four of them just haven't been addressed. And I'm like, tell you what, you do those four things and call me back. (laughs) And sometimes I'd say, I'd say seven out of 10 times they address those issues and their stress levels just go way down, you know? Mm. Cause they're just not attending to the basics that we have human bodies that have requirements. And as you know, a lot of leaders um, live with the myth of invincibility Yes. and they're just not invincible, right? They, they need water and food, sleep, exercise, fun. Uh, you know, I sometimes say to a leader, I'll go, when was the last time you, you went and just had fun, like screwed around, you know? And I don't have time. It's like, well, if you don't have time for that, you don't have time to be a good leader, <laughs> you know. So that, so I attended the basics, right? I just yeah. I attended the basics, and then, you know, I do stuff pretty. I mean, I meditate regularly. That's a very big spiritual practice for me. Uh, and I I won't go into all the research on mindfulness meditation, but I'm a i can just tell you, I'm a big believer. Yeah, big believer. Um, I try to foster healthy friendships that's important for me i check in you know i'm part of a you know this that i'm part of a 12-step recovery uh yeah. group for people who've had chemical addictions for many years i try to call three or four of my litter mates as i like to call them <laughs> uh in that community every day how you doing? every day wow on? three or four every single day yeah maybe a five minute conversation is just a check-in you know we 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 have very serious bonds of friendship and commitment in those communities and i Sometimes I just have to get out of my own head and, and think about someone else's feelings for a few mm. minutes, you know. Um, you know, I try to have a good sense of humor about stuff, and uh, and frankly, I'm I go to therapy every week. Wow! So I, you know, again, that's a long list, but but I don't care. Like you know, I'm not sure if we're going to get into Enneagram types here, but I don't care what type you are. Those things apply to every human being, all of them. So you got to invest in those things if you want to properly manage long-term stress uh, or short-term stress for that matter.
0: Yeah, I want to double click on a a couple of those. So uh, this may be uh, a rabbit trail that's not worth going down, but you mentioned calling two or three friends a day. So here's something I've been thinking about a lot over the last few years and never really articulated or frankly talked to anybody about it. But there was a time, you know, you think back to our childhood, we're of similar vintage. Uh, People used to drop by, right? You think about Mm. your parents' house, friends would drop by. Then that stopped happening. It's just like people don't drop by anymore because people are too busy. Um, I had a, a traveling salesperson knock on my door last month. I'm like, that happens once a year or once every three years. That used to be normal. But then this weird thing happened with phones, Ian, where you used to just call people all the time. It's like, I wonder what Ian's up to. I'll give him a call. And now it's like rude to call or you schedule a phone call. And that whole kind of spontaneous connection, like my calendar, unless I'm really intentional about it, even with my friends, I feel like sometimes you have to schedule time. And I want you to speak into the impact of that. Whether well, you think there's anything there, like what is the value of just being able to say, Hey, I'm just going to call my best friend right now. Or I'm going to call my buddy and see how he or she's doing.
1: Okay. Anything so there? I'm going to tell you the truth right now. I'm going to start laughing, but I call people all the time. Awesome. And I don't care. I don't care if they, they roll their eyes and, I, and I'll tell them when, when I call them. Uh, and what else do, this is even worse time them. Um, because I'm not satisfied just to hear their voice. You know, maybe it's my therapist side, but I want to see their eyes. I want to see the expression on their face. You know, I want to be able to know what's going on for real there. You know, I want to smile at them. I want to, uh, or I want to, you know, let them see if I'm not in a good space, you know, that my face is downcast. You know, Like I want to connect. Right. Um, and sometimes I'll text beforehand and I'll say, Hey man, you got time for a quick call. I did that t- Twice this morning. It's like, mm. I am not satisfied with my machine talking to your machine.
2: Yeah. You, you yeah. know what I mean? I don't know you mean. I know you mean, man.
1: The two degrees of separation between my glass and your glass. I, I want to relate to you. And I always tell people, I did it yesterday. I always tell people, will you please feel free just to stop by my house and have a cup of coffee or tell me, let's go out for a cup of coffee? But or let's sit on my porch and talk because I'm always looking for a distraction, you know. Mm. And so if you want to come sit on my porch for 20 minutes, half an hour, an hour or whatever, I love it. So to your point, I uh, that's a long winded answer, but I do believe in the power of human um, face to face interpersonal contact. Hmm. and uh, I will take it any day of the week uh, over. And sometimes I kind of force my friends into it by saying, hey, you know, let's, uh, let's not do just a call. Let's FaceTime. So you can do it anytime, any time, Carrie.
0: I'm going to do it to you. I'm just going like, to like bomb you. And I remember when it shifted about a decade ago or so. And so like you, I have a lot of young leaders who are listening. A lot of people, listen, young leaders at the Typology Podcast. I would love for you to speak to a leader in his or her 20s who goes, no, you text people. I don't even know that my phone has a phone. I don't call anybody and I FaceTime, you know, once in a while and that kind of thing. But what are you missing when everything is scheduled? You are a therapist. You're a psychologist. So what? What? that's your background. That's what you do. What, what are we missing because we don't have that kind of spontaneous uh, face-to-face, voice-to-voice, drop-by-my-porch culture anymore?
1: We're facing loneliness. That's what we're facing. And loneliness has reached epidemic proportions, and it's being widely reported on. I just was uh, reading a, a Harvard Business School uh, article the other day, and they, they spoke about the fact that in England, they now have a minister of loneliness. They actually have someone in their government who's trying to deal with the problem, the problem of systemic and epidemic loneliness in the culture. Hmm. Now, I don't know, but I bet you I could, you know, draw a line between when cell phone use and texting began and an increase in loneliness. I don't know if there's an, if there's some kind of a connection, but I would not be surprised if there was.
0: There is. Right? I mean, do you know um, the research of Jean Twenge from the, I hope no. I'm pronouncing that right, University of San Diego? I think she's going to be a guest on the show later this year. Uh, I just reached out to her. We're setting it up. She's done extensive research on the spike of anxiety in college-age students, because she teaches at University of San Diego, and the first digital generation. Yes. And she draws a direct line, not a dotted line, not a, "Mm, we think, it's like, no, there's a direct spike in digital nativeness and the rise in anxiety and depression.
1: Well, and part of that is, is that we receive more news information from around the world than we are capable of processing or digesting. Yes. So, you know, when when you, you know, when I was a kid, you read the New York Times and there were like five headlines, you know, (laughs) they didn't tell you about the outbreak of some small thing going on in Myanmar, not Myanmar, but you know, that's a big deal. But I mean, like in Papua New Guinea, you know, it's like there are disasters coming at us from everywhere bad news coming at us from everywhere and of course you know clickbait headlines uh, their their job is to scare the bejesus out of you so you'll read it i mean there's just a lot of stress in the in the, in the and you know what i don't think the human mind and heart is, is designed to cope with that much information it's overwhelming it's too much no wonder you no wonder we're anxious and depressed
0: I agree with that. I really do. Because, you know, you and I have the the good fortune of having a pre-digital memory. I remember when it was newspapers. Uh-huh. Um, we're old enough to remember three networks, four networks, right? And basically, you kind of got it. News was in a half hour. Now, every time you look at your phone, something's blowing up, someone's blowing up, something's bad. People are trying to get your attention. And, you know, the majority of listeners to this show wouldn't remember a world where that wasn't the case. What are what are some strategies in your mind for coping with that or handling that? Because I find sometimes for me it's like, yeah, I'm not looking at the news anymore. I don't watch TV anymore. Um, I really limit my my news consumption to what I need to know, try not to make you know the doom scrolling thing a part of my life. But it, it's hard to keep it out because it's just you're bombarded
1: 24-7. Well, I mean, one is is I am uh I spent in- and, and I mean, I shouldn't, but I guess, but I spent virtually no time on social media,
2: mm.
1: especially Twitter, which is sort of the outrage channel. You know, I, I just, you know, after a while, I'm like, oh my gosh, all these people who think I should be interested in their outrage. I mean, it's just, you know, I'm I'm a little bit like, ah, it's just too much anxiety and rage for me. Um, and then of course, you know, I mean, Instagram has its, you know, problems, uh, sort of anxiety producing or envy producing problems yeah. when envy, you know, leads to, you know, uh, feelings of, of comparison and then inferiority, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So I spend very little time on it. I go through periods where I get a little trapped in new stuff in the morning, but typically, you know, I, I glance at the wall street journal, the New York times and maybe CNN, but, mm. but but I, you know, I read the headlines, and I'm like, "Golly, you're clickbaiting me!" And yeah. it, it just it starts to annoy me. Um, and so I, I do try and and be self disciplined around those things. And uh, you know, and you know, I, I I again, like I said, I just don't think I'm capable of coping mm-hmm. with that much information without feeling like I'm drowning, mm-hmm. like I'm just drowning. And I just don't think that's that's any way to live and but we do have to deal with our that this is a real addiction problem so yeah. you know and technology is set up to create addicts right mm-hmm. so you know it's it's discouraging at times, you know but we can we can come up with good disciplines for it.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, Compassion fatigue is something I've spent a lot of time thinking about, right? Like when I get overwhelmed by international problems, and some of them are truly tragic, but, you know, there's a lot of uh, trivia there and clickbait and the whole deal. And then when you have an actual crisis, sometimes your um, compassion doesn't function the way it's supposed to function. It doesn't behave the way it's supposed to behave, um from your training and your experience any any thoughts on compassion fatigue and how to deal with it and then i want to talk about meditation because we skipped over it quickly but i want to come back to it
1: well good because it actually meditation will tie in beautifully to this topic of compassion mm. okay. you know uh it's no wonder we have compassion fatigue we have it's no wonder we have it because when you are watching this these many catastrophe catastrophes every single day i mean if you felt too much compassion all the time, you you're gonna run out. And after a while it becomes so commonplace, yeah. you know, that, that you're like, okay, there it is again. I mean, it's like yeah. and 20 you shootings have a on the weekend. Like, yeah. Well, and after a while you, you have this feeling of helplessness, right? It's like, what can I do? Well, there are too many crises. I don't even know which one to pick. You know, it's it's so so again, there's this feeling of helplessness, powerlessness. And when you're you know, you develop learned helplessness. It's like you're you're just like a a dog in a cage being poked with a stick and it'll bark the first 10 times you do that, but after a while it just lays there. Mm. You know, when you continue to do it, it just gives up. Mm. And I think I think that's what can happen to us with compassion. Now let's talk about meditation. What's your question? Yeah.
0: So uh, what's your practice? What does it look like? What are the
1: benefits? Yeah, every morning I get up, I have a I go to my cushion. I have my meditation cushion. Uh, I've been doing this for many years. Uh, I sit uh, for 20 to 25 minutes in silent meditation. And uh, I use a basic mindfulness practice, which is sitting on, It's I mean, meditation is so simple. We make it hard. So I Mm. I can just tell you right now, there's no guru kind of magic to this thing. You sit down on the cushion, you quiet the mind, you bring your attention uh, to your breath. And you follow your breath, and when your mind uh, becomes distracted by thoughts, which it will, thoughts aren't bad. We just secrete them, like you know, the thyroid gland you know, secretes enzymes or whatever, and we just smile at them and bring our attention back to to the breath, right? And so it's it's a training of the mind, and one of the re- what the research has shown, I mean, from the University of Massachusetts Amherst, from Stanford, from countless places. Uh, that regular mindfulness meditation elevates compassion, empathy, uh, and uh, feelings of of well-being and connectedness, uh, among other things. And and I'm I have seen that in my life. When I fall out of my meditation practice for some reason, the discipline of it, I have a I feel it. And when I'm doing it, there's a palpable. I'm a, I'm a different person when I'm regularly meditating. Hmm. I mean, and when, and then I go, why did I stop for two weeks? I mean, it's like, oh my gosh, this is something I don't ever want to lose. Why do you
0: think that is? I think a lot of us have heard about the benefits of meditation. It's part of the Christian tradition. It's part of a lot of spiritual Mm -hmm. traditions. What do you think, like I, I know what it is and I think a lot of listeners would know what it is, but why do you think it's so powerful?
1: Well, there's some, I mean, re- remember too that mindfulness. Uh, there are many, many people who would call themselves atheists who have mindfulness practices. Totally. Yeah. You know, because there's a science behind it. I mean, there's a mm. reason why, in the Christian tradition, the Buddhist tradition, other traditions like it, that that people gravitated toward it. It's because it works. That we knew it before the scientists did. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Exactly. It's, You know, and so it's, it's uh, the science says that, you know, what happens in meditation is there's a kind of rewiring of your neural pathways. And, and we we now know that, that um, routine patterns of, let's say negative thinking or judgmentalism, things like that can be softened and changed, rewired. So meditation uh, has the capacity to, and it's, it's, uh, you know, the proof is in the pudding. I I'm always telling people, Start at five minutes and do that until you think you're ready for seven. And then go to seven. If you do that for two weeks and that's all you got, okay, fine. Then do it for two weeks. Then go to 10. You know, I mean, just, I didn't go to 20 and 25 minutes. I got there in 20, 20 years,
2: yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. where
1: I can do 25 or 30 minutes. And in a group, I can do it. I, But but in a group, I can do an hour. That's That's not, I mean, it's a little bit easier for me in community than it is alone, but I can do a full hour with a community pretty easily.
0: Why is that? How is that?
1: I just feel, so. I think a lot of, and this is not, yeah, I mean, I don't think that's unique to me. I, I think when you're in a community, there's a sort of a, a sense of support that, uh, you know, that you feel in the room we're, we're, we we are all doing this together and we feel sort of connected and supported in the time of meditation. Um, and, you know, uh, that's why I think it's easier.
0: What happens when, um, because they do happen. I, I'm not. I wouldn't say prayer, but not meditation. I I want to try it more, um, because I think it has tremendous benefits. But you're right. You get derailed by all these thoughts that come in, and I got this to do, and oh my goodness, I forgot about that. What what do you do with those interruptions?
1: It's that's why we call it a practice.
0: Because <laughs> <laughs> I want to grab I want to grab my iPad or a piece of paper and write it all down, right? So.
1: Uh, but you don't. Yeah. Well, no, 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 no. But again, it's again, it's so simple. We make it hard, and it. But it is difficult. You know, mm-hmm. to quiet the mind uh, is is a difficult task. Uh, but it's it's really crucial. It's so crucial. It, it also develops, I call equanimity, which which is the quality of being able to cope and respond rather than react to whatever life happens to throw at you mm. in a given moment you know like when i have a regular practice going and the crap hits the fan i'm much it's much easier for me to be to stay calm and respond rather than go right into reactivity and do really dumb stuff yeah, yeah <laughs> you know what i right. mean Just, you know, say dumb stuff, make stupid decisions, uh, you know, have to apologize to three people, whatever. It, you know, I just am more centered and grounded and in not control, but, you know, in a place of where I'm able to really live that first part of the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference. And to, you know, and just be, "Ah, okay, okay, so this, let's do, let's deal with this. And it's not, you know, I, I I just live with more emotional wisdom when I have, uh, you know, a regular meditation practice. And, and so for Christians, by the way, where I recommend them to go is to really learn about centering prayer. Uh, And Centering Prayer, if they went to Father Thomas Keating, I think it's centeringprayer.org, if I remember, Okay. uh, a a Catholic priest who's been uh, sort of a pioneer uh, of centering prayer, which is essentially a mindfulness practice. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's a Christian mindfulness practice. And so for some Christians, that feels more safe. You know, if they're slightly anxious about the word meditation, which I think is a silly thing to be. Considering it's been a big part of our history, I think it's silly, but hey, you know.
0: Well, considering it's Old Testament, New Testament, that's not <laughs> that much of a stretch. Yeah.
1: If, if you need it to be centering prayer, that's fine with me. Just do it. <laughs> <laughs> that's
0: good. Ian, you you interact with thousands of leaders every year, maybe more, and you're talking to them on a regular basis. So here we are a full year and a bit into the crisis. What are the presenting issues? We kind of touched on it a little bit already, but if there's anything more there, I'd like to go there. What are the presenting issues? What are the, what are the challenges leaders are facing in this moment now that we're in a period of chronic stress, uncertainty, anxiety, and um, unresolved crisis?
1: Yeah, I mean, one is, to a point I just made, you know, is how, do, how do you respond instead of react? Um, how how do you begin to answer the question what does this crisis make possible right now versus how do i get things to go back to what they used to be like <laughs> well you need to give that up
2: yeah 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 <laughs>
1: that yeah. Th- that's the wrong question it's always the wrong question the the real question is always all right so what does this okay so here's a prayer i often say right god um what is your will for my life in this situation over which I have no control?
2: Hmm. And hmm.
1: that's a really great prayer in any given moment. That's a responding that prayer. Is. Not, that's how you respond to crisis. You go, All right, God, what is your will for my life in this situation over which I have no control? Okay. And who has control over the pandemic? Who has control over, you know, uh, w- what the uh, unemployment is like in, in a volatile economy and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But, but to step back and go, okay, what if, what is God's will for me in this situation? Over which, and this is important, mm. over which I have no control because that's an illusion. I mean, control is an illusion. Yeah. Right? That people would like because they get anxious. They like to think they're more in control of life than they are, right? So accepting powerlessness is actually the the greatest source of power we have. Hmm. Ironically, you know, embrace your powerlessness, and when you do that, you find power, right?
0: It's true. That's just
1: that's just a spiritual principle uh, in general of the universe. So that's one thing. I think another thing that leaders are facing is you know in the midst of I mean so many changes and uncertainties uh, in the future is, you know, how do I continue to lead rather than fall into the, the pitfall of micromanagement? Mm. When when people panic, they, they stop leading and they go down into the weeds. It's almost like a reflex. It's like they got to start micromanaging details Instead of saying, no, if if there's ever been a time when I need to lead and not micromanage, it's right now, you know? Uh, but that's the, that's the temptation, right? Is when, you know, is to get down the weeds and, and like start dealing with stuff that is really the business of other people. And you need to stay, leaders need to stay at 100,000 feet, okay. not go down to 10,000 and get involved in the minutia of whatever the organization is that they're leading because that's always a temptation, mm-hmm. right? You know. Uh, it's it's to get too involved in stuff that's really not best for you to be involved in. How do you stay out of that
0: as a, as a leader yourself? Are are you tempted to go there into micromanagement? Because when you say that, I I've learned that that is one of my responses to stress is like, now I'm going to get all in the details. So how do you keep yourself from that when you see yourself going there? If you do,
1: well, again, I mentioned meditation again, because yeah. Meditation helps me to be self-aware and to – what it does is it, it, it develops an inner observer in me that's able to stand back and catch myself in the act of doing mm-hmm. things I ought not be doing. It prevents me from living on autopilot. I, I'm able to step back and say, oh, this feeling of stress is coming up, and I feel like I want to get, you know, become – critical and wanting to see things you know she, you know reports and things like that that you know really aren't for me to look at. Uh, I just need to step back and let people do what, what they're supposed to do. I'm gonna do what I'm supposed to do and, and discipline myself to stay at, at a higher level um, looking down the road instead of you know getting too trapped in uh, what's happening in, in this present moment. You know It's, it's all anxiety management.
0: No. Yeah, it kind of is, isn't it? It kind yeah. of is, especially in a chronic stage. I mean, you can get through a bad week and get through a bad month, but when this becomes your life, it's a it's a different story. All right. I do want to open this up to the Enneagram because that is where you have spent a, a lot of your life and, and uh, what a lot of leaders know you for. And this is a really broad question. So feel free to take it wherever you want, Ian, because this is your wheelhouse. But Uh, What does the Enneagram have to teach us about this season that we are all in?
1: Well, so much. But I mean, one of the gifts of the Enneagram is is that once you know your type, it's able to reveal to you what you will probably begin to act, think, and feel like when you're under stress. Hmm. And when you're able to recognize that pattern arising in your life, to make new choices it gives you the freedom to make new choices in the face of stress like you know uh, as a four i know that i start to look like an unhealthy two when i'm under stress and when i spot those patterns emerging in my life i'll go oh i see where this is going and i can choose to m- make new uh, t- to approach things differently to make new choices than uh, I used to make before I understood my type. Right. Be on autopilot. I would just go there. You know, I'd go back and swing at the same old pitch and strike out every (laughs) single time.
0: That might be a fun place to camp for a little while. If you're up to it, do you mind taking us through the nine types, which will cover all the leaders, give us a quick summary of what they are and where we go when we're unhealthy because that's one part of the enneagram i'm not like i haven't got top of mind myself personally i kind of kind of have a rough sure. idea but i would love to know so you know let we can start with ones and you know give a brief thumbnail and then hey when ones are stressed here's what they do they go to this that that would be that would be worth camping
1: on i think all right so we're going to have to do it real quick i mean like, so i'm only going to give thumbnail sketches okay, okay. super super fast Ones are, are called, I call them the improvers. They used to be called the perfectionists, but I, I stopped calling them that because uh, they would say to me, you know, like, why am I the only type whose who's signifier is, you know, is so negative or pejorative sounding, you know? Well, uh, I would so, argue that
0: the challenger actually is more pejorative, but that's okay. That's me. Well,
1: you know, I'm, I'm not so sure if it is, but, uh, <laughs> you know.
0: Uh, but it feels like to me. Anyway, yeah, so number be, one is improver.
1: Yeah, the improver. So these are people who who have a need to perfect themselves, uh, all that they do, others in the world, okay? When a one is under stress, they start to look like an unhealthy four, okay? Their inner critic begins to work overtime. Mm. Their need to perfect the world goes into overdrive. Um, They might become more resentful of people uh, who are, having more fun than they are hmm. right are not as concerned as they are with uh, you know perfecting the world, they'll become more sensitive to criticism and depressed. and they'll start to long to be free of obligations and responsibilities and perhaps feel a little unlovable. Hmm? Hmm. So that's where that's where ones will, will often go in stress. Twos in stress, they start to look like an unhealthy eight. Uh, They'll become demanding. Two's a
0: helper, right? Two's a helper. Two's are the
1: helpers. They have a need. Actually, you know what? I'll make it real simple for you. Twos have a need to be liked. Mm. They just really want to be liked. They want to be uh, liked, appreciated, and approved of. And when uh, in the strategy for winning that love and approval is really giving and giving to others and helping to meet the needs of others. So Hmm. there's a little bit in an for an un, not a very self aware, too, there's a little bit of calculated giving. Hmm. It's like if I give to you in return, you will uh, give to me. And, and what I'm looking for is your approval, your appreciation, your liking me, and also meeting my personal needs without my having to directly come right out and ask for it. Hmm. Right. But when they're not doing great, they start to look like not so great eights. They become demanding. They can become controlling, aggressive. Um, they will blame other people uh, for what's making them unhappy, and uh, sometimes even vengeful uh, about past wrongs. So wow. that's what a that's where a two can go. They can also get in the space where it's like uh, this sort of res- martyr-y, resentful thing, where it's a little bit like. I'm always there for other people, but when I have needs, no one comes to my aid. You know what I mean? It's yeah, like I know exactly a, what you
2: mean. Yeah, you know, yeah. So, okay, that's so that's a side two. two
1: threes. Yeah, threes performers they have a need to succeed, to appear successful, and to avoid failure at all costs. Okay, when they get stressed, they they start to take on the characteristic behaviors of unhealthy nines. And they'll kind of retreat to the couch with the remote. You know, Uh, they may get lost in unproductive, busy work. Mm. Um, They'll be kind of worn out. They lose their characteristic optimism and confidence and they become a little more self-doubtful than they uh, normally are. Mm. Um, They might lose interest in working out or eating healthy foods and paying attention to their appearance. And uh, uh, so there's this kind of... um, Uh, weary edge to that unhealthy three. I can tell when a three is down, feeling stressed, man, they, they, they're just, they don't bring the juice like they normally do,
2: Mm.
1: you know? So I I would say with fours, the individualists, um, people, these are people who I think really want to find a place of belonging in the world. Mm. They, they feel like they they're missing something important in their essential makeup that Everybody else seems to have. Hmm. Uh, and you know, uh, that creates in them a sense of inferiority and it launches them on a quest to find whatever it is inside that is missing that they hmm. everyone else seems to have. And they, they tend to envy other people's normalcy and happiness. And, hmm. and there's this kind of feeling of I'm a misfit kind of a quality to them, you know. Uh, and, you know, that's why we, we have so many artists, who are a lot of great music and films and and poetry comes out of that, that feeling, you know, mm. uh, that feeling space, that melancholy that fours are, are often for. And when they get into a bad space, they start to look like uh, an unhealthy too. They become excessively dependent on other people. They crave attention. They'll need a lot of reassurance and, and affirmation from their friends and their partners and jealousy might surface, you know. Mm. Um, you want me to give you an example of this?
0: Yeah, I would love you to.
1: Okay. So I'm a four now yeah. I'm a particular subtype of a four. We're known as the sunny four. So I'm a, I'm not as melancholy as the stereotype four. Okay. Okay. And, um, I was, uh, I'm an Episcopal priest. I'm celebrating the Eucharist at, a, at an Easter mass and, uh, I happened to notice that in the front row, there was a guy wearing a seersucker suit standing next to his eight-year-old wearing an identical seersucker suit and identical bow ties, arm around each other, just singing and smiling. All right. <laughs> now, I see those two ki- those two people and, you know, and I, I look at them and, of course, I had, you know, I had this a terrible relationship with a, a father who died from alcoholism. Mm-hmm. And I looked at him and suddenly I just felt this sense of envy come up like, oh. Melancholy and envy. What if I'd had that kind of relationship with my dad? And now, because I have enough self-awareness, I mean, I'm not going to pat myself on the back, but I've done a lot of work on this stuff. And I just was able to stop. My inner observer was able to step back and observe it. And I went, you know, it's Easter, right? (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's that whole resurrection thing, promise of new life. And I'm like, do you really want to go there on Easter? I mean, seriously, this is the day we're singing Christ. The Lord has risen today. How about you join him? <laughs> <laughs> and then I kind of laughed at myself and I moved on. Right. But that's where, that's where that four can go when they're under stress. You know, we become, you know, that envy can arise and, and feelings of lesser than, and why didn't, you know, what if, And you know, thinking a lot about suffering in the past and it's like, under stress, when I start to go there, I now know, like, that's an old story, man. If you want to live in that story, you go ahead. But, you know, as far as I can tell, God has a new story for you, brother. Mm. You know? So, all right, that's moving powerful. on. Investigators. Man, fives. When a, when a, fives. I love fives, man. Oh, I'm
0: married fives. to one. Yeah. Uh,
1: aren't they the best? Mm-hmm. When they're healthy, man, I love fives. Fives fives are, are really um, people who are motivated by... Uh, a need to conserve what they perceive are limited resources, particularly for relationships. They feel very mm-hmm. depleted and drained when they're around people too much. Um, they are motivated uh, by uh, a need to gather knowledge and information to fend off what to them feels like an, uh, a really overwhelming and draining world. You know. And, um, and how do they do that, right? It's this, you know, they, they, they become sort of information junkies. They, they, just, they, they just can't stop learning. And, and, and that gives them a sense that, you know, knowledge is power. And so that gives them a sense of power. Now, when they're not doing great, they start to look like unhealthy sevens. Um, hmm. And that's really something to behold. They, they become uh, disorganized, distracted uh, to the point that they're not able to complete tasks, You know, they they sort of have word salads. They're normally very, very articulate and they can, they're very linear and analytical in their thinking. And suddenly things get disconnected and ideas are coming out right and left. You know, it's hard to follow what they're saying. Um, But they, you know, they can also, if they're not careful in that space, become a little rude, a little condescending, and emotionally Mm -hmm. more distant than usual. Um, you're nodding your head like that sounds. Oh, right. I, I
0: recognize all these patterns, and she will recognize mine when we get to them. Yeah, yeah, right.
1: Yeah. Okay, so yeah, totally. sixes, the loyalists. These people are motivated by a need to feel safe, secure, and supported in what to them feels like a very dangerous, uh, unpredictable world.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm.
1: Now, when sixes aren't great, doing great, they go to the low side, the negative side of three. Right, the performer where they can become workaholics who are, you know, looking for material success or hoarding resources. Why? Why would they choose to like chase after success? Because it would make them feel more secure.
2: Ah, that? Like okay. a, right? Yeah. So
1: in that space, sixes are, are, this is interesting. Sixes are some of the most truthful, honest people I know, but in, when they're under stress, they are more inclined to misrepresent themselves and project an image of competency. Hmm to fend off their own anxiety and to give others the impression that they have it all together, like an unhealthy three would. Right. Do do you see where I'm, this is the same for every number. So, uh, and why? Because it's going to fend off anxiety uh, that they they live. Sixes typically have a lot of anxiety. I got to
0: tell you, and your, your uh, description of sixes, both in our conversations, but also in the road back to you has given mm-hmm. me such an appreciation of sixes because it is that mm-hmm. mildly critical. I never knew how to read that personality type, that mildly critical 20 questions, 100 questions on the front end. But then when they're bought in, they're like loyal for life. And yeah. you you believe, your theory is, that that is the largest percentage of the population, probably? Or, you know, it's a not not, not, that, yeah, not like the majority, it's but like... a
1: meaningful chunk, but, but it, that's speculation. You know, a lot of yeah. teachers, Enneagram teachers will say, we think there are more sixes than any other type represented in the population and probably fewer hmm. than in the population than any other type.
0: But I've identified sixes in my life and I appreciate them more than ever because they were always a puzzle and I couldn't figure out, why are you so critical but then so loyal?
2: Like, ah, oh, I get
1: well, it. So be careful with using the word critical. Okay. I, I would say that more... Questioning, and uh, um, they're the first people to spot what could go wrong in a plan.
0: Okay, you're right.
1: Or, or a project, and and they'll and they'll, you know, if you're the leader and you got a six on your team, you present a plan. They're the first person to say, "Yeah, but have you thought through what would happen if this happened or that happened or this happened or that happened?" And it's and you may feel like, "Golly, man, this guy is so pessimistic."
0: Oh, I definitely feel that way.
1: Or he's so paranoid, uh, and if you say to a six, "Stop being such a pessimist," they'll get right up on you and go, "I'm not a pessimist. I'm a realist." And you're up in the you're an idealist, but you're in the clouds. You have not thought through what will happen to cash flow in the third quarter if you go forward with this plan. Mm-hmm. I can see the problem. You cannot see the problem, and and you'll feel like they're critical or you know pushing back on your leadership. No, 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 no. They want to know. What they're supposed to do should something go wrong. So they're going to keep pushing you to find out have you thought through all the contingencies? And if you answer all their questions and you have prepared for what could go wrong, they will follow you up a cliff. They will support you to the very end. Mm. But if you haven't thought it through, man, they're going to be like, I don't know. So helpful. So I don't know helpful. about following this. Guy. I want to get my
0: thirties back. Cause I think I alienated a lot of sixes Ian.
1: <laughs> oh, Oh man. I I'd like to get my thirties back. If I knew then what I know now, I, would you know.
2: Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh,
1: I don't even want to think about it. Anyway, uh, the enthusiasts. Uh, these are people who are motivated by a need to avoid psychological and emotional pain.
2: Hmm. Hmm.
1: And uh, they do that by, uh, hotly pursuing um, fun happiness uh, future escapades adventures uh, interest by pursuing interesting ideas uh, sampling everything that life has to offer them so that in the they don't have to be in the present moment where things like stuck and boredom and routine and sadness or grief or discomfort might be they can live in this this future of unlimited possibilities all the time, hmm. right? Uh, the future always has something contained in it that this moment cannot give you. Right.
2: True.
1: So now when a seven's not doing great, they will start to look like uh, they're a, sort of a, an unhealthy one and they'll become pessimistic, judgmental, argumentative. They'll take the moral high ground. Hmm. Uh, they'll start blaming others uh, for their problems and they'll lapse into black and white thinking. So, that's something that, you know, sevens uh, just have to be aware of. My son went to boarding school and uh, sometimes he would call me on the phone. He would say, you know, I don't like any of the kids on my floor. They smoke pot and, and they're just not respectful. And I'll go like this. Is it exam time? <laughs> because I, I know what's happening is he's, he's, he's taking the moral high ground. I'm not saying he's wrong. I'm just saying he, he has suddenly become focused on, on those sorts of things and becoming kind of um, – yeah, judgmental, critical, and a little self-righteous indignation starts to bust out, you know? Um, <laughs> all right, eights. All right, let's talk about eights. Uh, when you guys are not doing great, um, well, first of all, you're the challenger. You're motivated by a need to assert power and strength over the environment and others in order to mask vulnerability, okay? Mm-hmm. Now, when eights get stressed out, they move to and take on the qualities that you would associate with an unhealthy five. Okay, uh, here, they, you, you, you'll withdraw and become even less connected to your emotions. Mm. And uh, you might experience insomnia. You may neglect to take care of yourself. You may not eat correctly or exercise right. Uh, you'll become more secretive, hypervigilant about betrayal. And you also may dig your heels in and become even more uncompromising than usual. Yes. Right. Uh, and that's not a great space for eights, you know, you, you, and you'll withdraw, which is very unusual for eights. M- normally, eights assert when they want something, they go and get it. Fives tend to withdraw when they're not in a great space and they go into themselves to find what they need. They don't and to get what they want. Y- you go out and get it right mm. pretty aggressively. right? All right. Nines last number um, in, in stress. Nines start to act like unhealthy sixes. And they become overcommitted, worried, rigid, wary of others, more anxious, and may not know why. Right? Um, they'll become more self-doubting than usual, which which makes decision making even more difficult. And they'll become uh, reactive, and, mm. which is uh, a, a sort of a big departure for a number that is rarely, if ever, quick to react. So. That's the that's the nine types. And just a thumbnail. I can say a ton more about what they're like under stress, but that's just a, a sample of what, what some of those types will do.
0: Well, that's so helpful. And you and I have an open dialogue right now about whether I'm an eight or a three, because my wife, Tony and I did an interview for your typology podcast. And at the end, you were like, hey, are you sure you're an eight? Are you a three? And so I imagine there's some listeners here who are like, Ian, I'd, I'd love to know which one I am tell them how they can figure it out.
1: Well, they can read my book, The Road Back to You. That would be helpful. Mm-hmm. I've put it out website. so
0: many times to people and thank it's you so you helpful. Thank you very
1: much. I thank you. And Brown University, thanks you for paying my son's tuition. <laughs> uh, you can um, go to ianmorgancron.com, dot ncom And you can take my IEQ9 Enneagram Assessment Right, that would be another possibility. Listen to my podcast, Typology, well, on which I really I speak to people of all types uh, and try to get to hear what it's like to live in their shoes and to see the world through their eyes. And that also is very helpful to people when they identify with different types. And um, obviously, you know, check out my Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter feed at Ian Morgan Cron, and I, you know, you'll learn tons about what I'm up to.
0: And I like what you say, too, about just paying attention to uh, like giving yourself some time. Read the book, maybe do the assessment, live in it a little bit, see what Mm -hmm. works. It took you like a long time to figure out what you were, and you teach this stuff. Yeah. Um, I would love to know just a couple more questions before we wrap up. Talked about getting healthy. What are you most concerned about for leaders moving forward? It does seem like we're moving into an unstable time or season. So what what is worrisome to you or what are you focused on as we head into the future, Ian?
1: Well, you know, I think I've covered some of it in in the conversation, which is, you know, helping them to live in a space of responding versus reacting to what's happening. Yeah. Also to avoid slipping into management mode versus leadership mode, Mm -hmm. you know, um, you know, most leaders have good managers underneath them. Let them, let them, let them do their job and uh, don't frustrate them by, you know, getting into their grills about stuff. You know, stay, stay at the level of mission, of vision, of, you know, f- looking down the road and forecasting what's coming. Um, that's the sort of thing that I think is important. And, you know, another thing we spoke about, that I think is very important for leaders, is to make sure that, they, that they're – to really self-examine and ask themselves the question, am I lonely? because mm. obviously loneliness is a big issue for leaders. And, and, and what's interesting about right now that's happened is that I've been reading some articles and talking with leaders is they've been calling CEOs of companies they compete with. And because, you know, they, they have ambivalent relationships, but then most of them know each other. Right. Yeah. And they're asking each other, what are you doing with the pandemic? Like, how are you handling this? And what are you, you know, they're like sharing notes with each other. And I think part of that's reflective, not only of, you know, I need help. It's also a reflection of, I'm kind of lonely out here. Yeah. And uh, I think leaders have to be very cautious of loneliness, mm-hmm. really cautious. Can you tell me why?
0: What, what, what happens when you're lonely?
1: Human beings are social creatures. And uh, when, when we get lonely, we start to feel isolated. Uh, we start to live in what I call an epistemic cocoon. Which, mean, which meaning that uh, we get trapped in, in uh, only hearing uh, our own viewpoints and perspectives, and we, we lose the opportunity to bounce them off of other people and to hear alternative ways of seeing the world and reacting to the world. And you know what? Our hearts just need it. You know, we, we, we have a deep need for human connection. It's just a, mm. it's just a fact. I mean, the it research, shows it. it's not even like, it's not a spiritual opinion, although it is. Um, you know, it's not good for men or women to be alone, right. <laughs> you know, to borrow an idea. I, I mean, and, <laughs> kind of just, and tweak it a little bit, but you, yeah. I just think it's, I just think it's true. I mean, let's talk about it from a Christian perspective. God is a community. Hmm. He's three, right? I mean, it's like we, we, uh, our God has a social component. Uh, and, and so, you know, I, I think we have to pay attention that uh that this this is the case you know like we we're built for relationship for community and uh we desperately need it for good health mental health
0: so random phone calls facetime calls connection with friends for leaders who feel isolated and this is becoming a recurring theme on the podcast but i'd love to get your take on it they're like okay ian thank you i'm all alone um I have I have burned some bridges. I'm cut off. I don't feel comfortable, you know. There's nobody I could really call right now. And that according to like people like Henry Cloud and others is actually the almost default position for most leaders. If you really get under the hood, most of us are lonely. And what would you say they should do?
1: Well, don't they need to stop flattering themselves? If they think, you know, uh, you know, you know, I really um burn too many bridges, as you said, or I'm, um, you know, you know what you just described is somebody yeah. who has a pretty high opinion of their of their badness. You know what I mean, <laughs> or their their unworthiness of relationship. I mean, you know, I mean they, you know, they have to cultivate more emotional wisdom. I mean, they could read Daniel Goldman's book on emotional intelligence. I mean, That's they just learn how to be with people in the world, you know, leaders have to learn how to be vulnerable. You know, oftentimes leaders can confuse vulnerability with weakness. And that's a big mistake, man. You know, uh, they've learned that in business, it's like, you know, I remember one CEO saying to me, hey, you know what, if you want to play in the NFL, you got to expect you'll be hit, you know, and he was like being a tough guy about it, you know, and I'm like, (laughs) okay, whatever, here's another one of these guys who doesn't know how to be vulnerable. And he thinks that invulnerability being a you know, being a hard ass all the time is courage. And I'm like, that ain't courage, man. That's mm. cowardice. Vulnerability is courage. Vulnerability is what requires courage, not defendedness, you know? Mm. And so, uh, and vulnerability is arguably the most important ingredient in forging great relationships. So I would tell leaders, Work on vulnerability of many things, I would say to them, you want to have relationships, start practicing vulnerability. I think one of the
0: things you told me once, and this may have been on a podcast, so people can listen back, but I would love you to underscore it and um, if, if it's incorrect in my memory, let me know. but I believe you you made a distinction between vulnerability and transparency oh does that does that resonate at
1: all? Yeah.
0: Because you said, Carrie, I think you said, Carrie, you're being transparent but not vulnerable. Can you can you explain what the difference is?
1: Yeah, and, and I would even say, just for our sake today, I'd talk yeah. about what I call strategic transparency. Okay. <laughs> you know, I remember. You know, there was a period in the church. You know, when you'd go and you hear some pastor, but it was the outside of the church too. When everyone was talking about quote unquote authenticity. Yeah. You know, we want to be an authentic church. I want to be an authentic pastor. And I'm, you know, as a, you know, I'm a, I was a pastor and I've, I'm, I'm a therapist. You know, whenever I hear people saying, I just, I want to be authentic. I'm usually like, you understand, don't you? That when you try to be authentic, you're automatically being inauthentic. You're, you're, <laughs> you <laughs> you understand what I'm saying, right? You know what you mean. And, yeah. and, and so you, sometimes I'll hear people talk and there's this kind of strategic transparency, it's like, I want to tell you about my, you know, I have this addiction and I have this, right. Mm. You know, and it's a little bit like I get the sense that that just feels a little bit like strategic transparency. Like, like you're kind mm-hmm. of taking a shortcut and making it sound like vulnerability, but it's not really. Mm. I know I'm being vulnerable when um, I share somebody, something with somebody and I sweat mm. or I might get choked up. Or the hair on the back of my neck stands up. Or I really worry this person might abandon me if I tell them this this thing about myself. Which has rarely ever happened. But yeah, you know, that, that fear comes up. To me, that's sort of a tell, that's sort of the tell that I'm being vulnerable, right? And so I, you know, sometimes I hear what, what I call strategic transparency and it kind of drives me crazy because it's, you know, I think it's unconscious on the person's part, but frankly, at its worst, it's, it's kind of manipulative, mm. it, you know, yeah, you, yeah. you kind of get this sense like, oh, you're trying to create this sense of, you know, of making a connection with me when actually this is not really what's happening here, you know, uh, and uh, and smart people can smell it usually,
0: right? You know, right?
1: That um, feels like it, it feels a little bit like an act.
0: And if you're an eight like I am, that that is a little bit harder than it is for other types. Is that fair? Is that true?
1: Well, it'd be harder for you because you have no tolerance for it. I mean, uh, you 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 are somebody who um, you can smell deception a hundred miles away. Oh yeah, totally. I say right. that to
0: people I'm with. I'm like, that guy's yeah. lying. I can tell. Yeah, I mean, like, you can
1: smell it and you can mm. smell a, a poser. You you don't have much time for it. <laughs> don't get so me started. So if you get the sense that somebody's kind of like trying to work you, yeah, you're like, mm, I don't know. This guy seems like he's got another agenda here. This, you know, it's like, I'm feeling an ulterior motive behind all this sharing.
2: And I know that it's,
1: <laughs> you know, listen, I don't want to be, I don't want to be too cynical here.
2: Yeah. I
1: want people to understand, to discern, I want leaders to discern the difference between strategic transparency and vulnerability. Hmm. You know, uh, it, I don't want leaders to become stupidly vulnerable. There's, you know, there's places Yeah, to be yeah. you shouldn't share you want with to be everybody. Aff- right. Yeah, no, no, you want to be appropriately vulnerable to this person in the situation. You know, hmm. I, I don't tell my kids the deepest secrets of my heart. It's not appropriate. <laughs> they, they can't really... It's not appropriate, right? I mean, I will with my wife, mm. right? I, I will with, you know, very, very few people. You have to be very, you have to be, again, discernment's the rule here. Be discerning, right? Yes. But a good leader is vulnerable enough with his or her team. If they're not, like for an eight, that, you know, vulnerability does not, you have to really be more, I can be vulnerable in a heartbeat, brother. Mm. You have a lot more trouble with vulnerability than I do.
0: It's, it's a learned right. skill. No, it's not a learned skill. It's a learned habit. It's not a skill. Right. It's, a, it's a practice of mine that I have become more and more comfortable with over the years.
1: Right. And when you do it appropriately with your team, they then feel comfortable sharing their weaknesses and vulnerabilities with you. Otherwise, they will see you as Teflon and something they can never live up to. And they'll view you as potentially being someone who's unsafe. Mm-hmm. Right, mm-hmm. because you know, I'm not going to share with. He's not. Gonna, I mean, there's kind of a little bit of mutuality that happens for real vulnerability to the benefits of vulnerability to bust out.
0: Oh, Ian, once again, so rich. I know this is a continuing conversation on this show, and I know it won't be the last round. But just thank you so much for serving to lead with our leaders today. Any any final thoughts? Anything you want to leave leaders with as we move into this rather wobbly future, as far as we can see, anyway?
1: Yeah. Well, um, every morning uh, I say four prayers, okay, and I'll just tell you one of them, and then go look it up. And I don't. By the way, you, you could do this prayer even if you're not a Christian. I don't care. You, it is one of those prayers of intention if you want it to be, or you know, a prayer that that is aligned with your own spiritual worldview. And I'll say. You already heard me say a little bit of it. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Enjoying one moment at a time, living one day at a time, accepting hardship as the pathway to peace, taking as he did this simple world as it is, not as I would have it, uh, trusting that you will make all things right if I surrender to your will, that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with you in the next. One of my favorite prayers. Good for everybody. Great for leaders.
0: Wow. Well, we'll leave it there. Ian Morgan Cron, thank you so much. I appreciate it. We'll link to everything in the show notes. People can find you at ianmorgancron.com. Make sure you check out the Typology podcast. And uh, Mm -hmm. so excited for that. And do get a copy of The Road back to you. It's a fantastic book. Thank you so much, Ian. Well, aren't you glad you listened to the end? That whole piece about vulnerability and authenticity. So good. So good. So, yeah, you know, it makes me think. Sometimes I'm transparent, uh, but am I really being vulnerable? I think that's really important. And I want to get better at that. I want to get better at that. So I got a What I'm Thinking About segment. I'm going to talk about all these personality assessments, Enneagram and more, and how that... I actually think this is a spiritual discipline. You can disagree, but listen to the end to find out. Next episode, I want to let you know what's coming down the pipe. Annie F. Downs is back. How can you not love Annie F. Downs? She is the best. She is so much fun. She is crushing it. She just hit the New York Times bestseller list. She has an amazing podcast network. And uh, well, we talk about all things, Annie, here's an excerpt.
2: And people need, they need to know that their workplace where they are eight hours a day, the majority of their day and the majority of their week, they need to know that that's a place where the fullness of their life is allowed to be there, not just the robotic doing their
1: tasks. So you inviting that into your company is actually saying like, I recognize I need help having fun. I bet we all do. So we're going to talk about it and we're going to come up. I mean, Carrie, one of the things I would suggest to all of our friends listening with the teams that they lead or with their family or both is if you will sit down and say to each other, tell me what sounds fun to you.
0: And that's coming up next time. For those of you who are authors, uh, she's got some really, really interesting tips or would be authors. Also coming up, subscribers, you get it, you know, automatically delivered to you. Francis Chan, Tim Keller, Simon Sinek. Uh, Who else do we have? We have uh, Alan George coming up from Life Church, which is really fascinating. Amy Edmondson just booked Gene Twenge from the University of San Diego. And uh, David Allen getting things done. I mean, a whole lot coming up over the next little while. Uh, So excited for all that. And now it's time for what I'm thinking about. This is brought to you by ProMedia Fire. You can head on over to get a free consultation today at promediafire.com forward slash growth so that they will manage your social media for you. And Google XP Summit. If you're an executive, admin, or operations pastor, you want to be there this May in Colorado, XP Summit, hosted by CDF Capital. So um, I am a big fan of the Enneagram. And I know there's a lot of people who are like, ah, blah, blah, blah. or what about all the personality profiles? I can tell you, if you join my staff, this is true when I led a church. It's true when I let a lead a company. I will run you through at least a half dozen personality profiles. We use the Enneagram. We do the IE9 report uh, from Ian Cron. What else do we use? We use uh, Leading from Your Strengths. Fantastic, fantastic um, piece, not just for individuals, but for their team. I also use Right Path. We use Strength Finders uh, and a handful of other tools that we've used uh, over the years. Oh, also, uh, Pat Lencioni's. Working Genius, uh, run my whole team through that. So why do I use so many different personality profiles? And I'll tell you, here's what I really believe. It leads us to self-awareness. So when you're hiring or when you're trying to figure out how to lead yourself and lead your team, these personality profiles will help you realize, first of all, you got to lead people the way they want to be read. Not everybody is the same, right? If you're managing an Enneagram one, Uh, and they are really hard on themselves, you're going to have a very different dialogue than if you're managing an eight who, like me, maybe needs to be hit over the head a little bit harder. Or a six who's very sensitive. uh, Or a two, you know, who really just wants to help. It can really help you be a better manager and a better leader. So I think you're a better steward of the people that you're encountering. Now, the other profiles will do the same thing. But here's what I found really helpful, too. When I use the Enneagram, when I use Leading from Your Strengths, uh, Strength Finders, uh, you know, Working Genius, programs like that, Right Path, here's what I discover. I learn about myself. I learn about my blind spots. Uh, I have been on this personal growth trajectory now for about 20 years. And I remember, I don't even remember what the profile was, but I went to Ohio probably around 2003 to participate in the now defunct Pastors of Excellence program. It was a great program. And I remember getting some kind of assessment, and it was one of the first ones I had seen in myself. I was in my early 30s, and I read it, and I'm like, oh my gosh, I got like big blind spots because I had a staff member years ago who called me Bam Bam. She goes, if you ever watch the Flintstones, it's like, Carrie, you don't know your own strength. You walk into a room, you think you're having a conversation, but you just clobbered everybody in the room. I'm like, really? I didn't even know it. See, and you're blind to that stuff. And so it's going to make you a better person, better spouse, better parent. If you have kids, it's going to make you a better friend. It's going to make you a better boss, better team member. So from a self-awareness standpoint, that's huge. You know what else it is? Self-awareness is spiritual awareness. I have come to realize that if I don't know that an issue is present in my life or the impact that I'm having on other people, that uh, that I can't confess it. I can't. I can't really like what is populating my prayer life, and I don't like everything I read in the reports about myself. I mean, some of it's kind of amusing, and some of it's like, "Ooh, you need to do some work, Newhoff. Like you got to do some work here. Okay, you are not being the kind of husband that you could be, or the kind of father, or the kind of boss, or the kind of friend." And so I get to sit down with the assessment. If you've ever done a 360 review, Right Path will do that for you. Whew, that can be brutal sometimes. You sit down and you're like, okay, God, I, I got to pick this stuff up here. What do I do? And that's why I also believe in counseling. I have sought counseling for the last two decades. I just hired a new performance coach slash uh, psychotherapist over the last few months And I'm learning new things about myself in this season. And I'll tell you, I want to keep growing. I want to keep growing. So if you're a little bit suspicious about things like the Enneagram, or you're not sure it's worth the money, not sure it's, I mean, you buy a book, whatever, but you can do the IE9 or run your whole team through the personality profiles. I would just suggest to you that uh, the self-awareness you get from it is huge. That's how you're going to grow as a human. if, If you've got the courage to take it and to actually look at that and go, okay, this is who I am. Self-awareness is spiritual awareness. It was John Calvin who said, without knowledge of self, there is no knowledge of God. And without knowledge of God, there is no knowledge of self. I think that is a profound statement. And the more you learn about yourself, the more you see your blind spots, the better a leader you can be. Hey, I so enjoy this journey with you. Thank you for everybody for sharing it on social media, for leaving Ratings and reviews and all those good things back with NEF Downs next time. And I hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Kerry Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change and personal growth
2: to help you lead like never before.